Hey folks, did you know that April is School Library Month? You may have caught last week's episode where we revisited the amazing wisdom of Karina Kilantan. We want to keep that conversation and that celebration of School Library Month going. We know that this is a great time for us to think about the critical role that libraries play in our community. That's why we are bringing you a conversation that we had earlier last year with Jennifer Lagarde. Many of you may know her as Library Girl. Again, she's got so much to share about what libraries do, how they often lead the conversation around digital information and media literacy. And that's where we're going on this conversation. So enjoy and then head on over to the show notes to learn all about the ways that you can also celebrate School Library Month. Want to save time with common emails, grading comments, and repetitive typing? Use TextBlaze today to eliminate repetitive typing forever and get your work done within your working hours. Create easy-to-use templates with endless customizations and powerful automation. Try it free today at textblaze.me slash shifting schools. That's T-E-X-T-B-L-A-Z-E dot me slash shifting schools. And thank you to TextBlaze for being a Shifting Schools partner. So great to be back here with Trisha. Trisha, you just came off a beautiful weekend out in Canada. I, uh, you guys were paddle boating? What were you doing? We canoeing? were stand-up paddle boarding, but I think the crucial distinction is we were doing it with our puppy, which is really fun. Um, again, she had she had her safety vest on. So listeners, if you're listening, uh, it's good to, to know that. So um, she absolutely loves it. Like she's a little pro. The board came out and she jumped right on it and seemed like she'd been doing it her whole puppy life. Awesome. We've got a great guest with us here today. Jennifer's here with us. Uh, she's authored a couple books, one called Facts Versus Fiction, Teaching Critical Thinking in the Age of Fake News from 2018 uh, ISTE publication, and a new one, Developing Digital Detectives from 2021, another ISTE uh, product. Are you in Olympia right now, I Jennifer? Am. Oh, my home yeah. state. Yay. Somebody from Washington. This is great. Uh, so great to have you here, Jennifer. Uh, as we get started, kind of maybe talk a little bit about uh, who you are, where you come from. What's your, what are you doing in education today? What's kind of been your journey? Sure. Well, thank you both for having me. I really, really appreciate it, especially to talk about this topic, which is near and dear to my heart. Although it certainly wasn't, isn't what I thought I would be talking about when I started out in education a hundred years ago. I began, you know, my life as a classroom teacher uh, way back in the day, right after the Civil War thereabouts. And I thought when I graduated from teacher school that I would teach 11th grade English. My classroom would look exactly like Dead Poet Society and I would do it for the rest of my life. And of course, that's not at all what my journey turned out to be. And thank goodness, you know, from the classroom, I went into the library and then I became a digital teaching and learning specialist in the state of North Carolina, where I supported all of the state's teacher librarians and what we called instructional te technology facilitators before I retired um, a few years back and came home to Olympia, Washington, where I now live. And my life now is really split between um, several projects. First and foremost, I consider myself a lifelong, you know, reader and person who helps kids fall in love with reading and writing and thinking, which is where information literacy comes in, um, by the way, a mm. little bit later. But I do that now by teaching pre-service teachers and librarians through Rutgers University, 
through PD that I, you know, do around the country and then also through my books with Darren and other projects online. So I get to do like sort of a potpourri of stuff. Oh, that's cool though. I love that. And I love the pre-service. Like I teach for, I teach at Whitworth university, uh, the MIT technology class. It's so great when you can give back to Mm pre-service teachers and so many different ways to influence the next generation of kids. So that's great. Well, and I suppose Jennifer, you know, like the reference to dead poet society for anybody who's big into like book, Twitter, librarian, Twitter, you are sort of, you know, library girl, your, your, your persona in that space. It is kind of like, Oh, captain, my captain, like you're doing such a great job. Um, you know, I, I think you. for, for anybody who's interested in, in books or becoming a librarian, I think there is that parallel. Um, and as of right now, you have over 600 and counting people signed up yes. for your, uh, your digital detective squad book club. We'll talk about the book a little bit later on. Um, you know, that's really impressive to ha- have that many folks wanting to discuss a book. Could you talk a little bit more about what conversations are to be with that group? Sure. So, you know, this is the second time Darren and I have offered a free book club. And the first time we had just over 600 people sign up. And this time we're, this morning we're sitting at 650. So I'm really excited by the number of people who recognize that information literacy is, although it's not really, uh, necessarily explicitly outlined in a lot of states curriculum is something that teachers and librarians really need to tackle with their kids because they see it as a a problem that's facing us not only as Americans, but as a species. So it's really exciting to see that kind of engagement. And what we're going to focus on is thinking about how we can flip traditional information literacy efforts on their ear and do them in a new way. Because a lot of the tools that we use in information literacy, think about the crap test, you know, the rad cap, mm. and all of that stuff. They've been around for decades. And yet that sort of begs the question, if they're so great, why isn't it this working? Why are we in the mess we're in Mm. today if these tools that we've been relying on for so many years are really effective? And so we want to focus on how to not just simply tell teachers, hey, you're doing it wrong. Have fun. See you later. But say, what are some new ways that we can do this um, that really focus not only on the tools that kids actually use today to get and create information, but also on the human behavior that that drives those processes? Oh, I love that. Can you talk a little bit more about the human behavior that drives those processes? I love that. Sure. So one of the things that Darren and I have focused intently on in our on our second book and also just in our efforts with uh, teachers and administrators around the country is the idea that technology changes, you know, like while we're sitting here today, new apps are being developed that our kids will be on and using long before we even know what they are. We can't possibly Mm. keep up with every tool and every algorithm. You know, the algorithms that underpin those tools are a lot smarter than we are and that there's whole teams are that work on those constantly um, to make predictions about how we are going to behave when we engage with them. And to us, that's the key, right? Those tools and those platforms change all the time, but here's what doesn't change. Here's what hasn't evolved in the last several decades, the human brain. Human behavior mm. is remarkably predictable. And that's why these algorithms work so well, because they're based on decades and decades and decades of research into human behavior. They're a set of predictions, right? If we, If the algorithm does A, then 
and they're predicting that we're going to do B and C. And if we suddenly do D, then they're going to change the algorithm to make sure that we go back to A and B. So because people, you know, we know what humans are, uh, what what humans will do given a certain set of stimuli. And so we focus our information literacy on that, on thinking about um, how we can understand our own emotional responses to information um, and how mm. those emotions drive our behaviors, what that behavior translates to in, um, in terms of our online lives, and then how we can navigate that in a way that makes us smarter, savvier, and less easy to manipulate. Oh, I love that. It's so it, it's so interesting. There's two things that I want to talk about. Sure. I, I, I 100% love common sense media mm-hmm. as a starting place for schools, but that can't be the only thing that you do when you're covering thing like, you know, digital literacy, uh, media literacy, whatever, you know, your digital citizenship curriculum, start with common sense media. They're, they're, they're a great starting sure. point, but they don't get to these deeper ideas, this deeper understanding that, and conversations that we need to be having with students. And I think the other part, as you were talking, I always laugh at this because whenever I'm doing trainings around using Google, we love, hate Google. Yeah. We love Google that you can search for anything. It's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I can search for something and Google gives me exactly what I'm looking for. And I'm like, this is amazing. Right. And then we hate Google because it knows so much about us that it gives us exactly what we're mm-hmm. looking for, you know? So it's just this, it's, it, we're, we're in this really interesting place of, but I want it that way. The reason why everybody uses Google is because they've, they're really good at knowing exactly what you want Yes, from your search history, from everything else, from where you're going. And, and so they do that. And then we complain that, oh, they track me everywhere. Well, they track you everywhere, but you're getting exactly what you want. Right. And so you have to understand how and why that, that all works. I might push back on that just a little bit and say, yes, Google gives us exactly what it, what we want. And also they give us exactly what we will engage with. Google doesn't care mm. what we want. They care how we engage. So, you know, it's the same thing by, you know, I might say, oh, I want to be X, Y, and Z. But then when push comes to shove, I pick a different option because it feels better or because my emotions drive me to it. Google's going to give me that different option that I've engaged with. You know what I'm saying? So along with that engagement, a lot of times that engagement is tied with an emotion. Like I might say, gosh, I want an internet where people are kinder and um, more understanding of one another. But if I engage with the content that makes me angry, that makes me fearful, Mm. that makes me upset, Google's going to give me more more of that rather than what I want. And what comes along with that is not only the content that I engage with, but all of those emotions. So if that initial content made me angry, if it made me fearful, if it made me untrustworthy of certain groups of people, those Mm. emotions are going to be repeated over and over and over again with those search results that are going to continue to give me what I engaged with. And I I love what you're talking about, Jennifer, because it's a reminder that as adults, we've got to do that critical reflection. You know, I, I feel like folks probably know what I'm talking about when I talk about the phrase doom scrolling. Yes. And um, you're right. You know, the algorithms know there's there are stories that are newsworthy, but then they also are very aware of what are the things that are bound to provoke outrage in me or a mm-hmm. fear response in me, right? Because 
we're, we're driven to learn more about those issues. And so yes. I, I really, I've tried to do a better job with my own social media consumption and being aware of, Trisha, are you going down that doom scrolling, that loop thing, you know, because the, the tech is going to outsmart me with that. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we want to have these conversations with students, but I, I feel like what you're talking about is starting with the self a little bit and being aware it, of our it is emotional. Exactly. Exactly. Because look, you know, back around in the early 2000s, we all made a secret pledge, like we had a secret handshake, and we didn't even know it. We decided that none of us were going to pay for information anymore. Right? We, yes, okay. you know, we just decided that information should be free. And so what that did is put people who create information, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, a content creator on Instagram, somebody who plays YouTube, or plays video games on YouTube, or a trained journalist puts them all in the same position of having to sell their product, having to make there's the post, there's the video, their meme, whatever, the one that we click on, the one that goes viral, because that's how they make money, right? And so what's a way to get us to click? Emotion. And so rather than asking kids, hey, is there clickbait in this? Well, duh, there is clickbait in it. We have to (laughs) ask them... Just assume there's yes, clickbait in here. exactly. Help them understand why the clickbait is there and to recognize what type of clickbait triggers them and what to do then mm. when that happens. I love this. And I want to, I want to talk about this because I think this, this ties in really, really great with a, a recent tweet of yours. And I want to read this tweet back oh, to you. Dear. And I want to read it for, for the audience here. Uh, I didn't dig into it because I love this. And here it is. Already, okay. quote, the bottom line is this. Failing to teach kids infolit skills that A, focus on mobile devices, and B, apply to the spaces they use most, leaves them fundamentally unprepared to contribute to a democratic society and vulnerable to the people for whom that is precisely the goal. Yes. (laughs) Let's talk about A. Let's talk about A first. What are you seeing around schools, the conversations you're having with this focus on mobile devices? Because this is still something even, you know, I'm a consultant as well. It's still one of the the big things that I'm finding districts are hung up on is, yeah, we do common sense media. We teach this stuff, but we don't teach it on the phone where we know these kids are spending their lives. We're not teaching it in TikTok or with Instagram or about, you know, the news app that's on the phone. Mm -hmm. So- Let's talk about that. What are you seeing around this this idea about focusing on mobile devices? Sure. So this tweet grew or was really a response to some data that the Pew Research Center um, released a week or so ago around the use of TikTok for information and and research. And of course, you know, educators lost their mind on Twitter and the other places about, you know, oh, these young whippersnappers, how can they possibly be using TikTok? We're doomed, you know, that kind of thing. It was really the exact same conversation we've had over and over again, only we could insert Wikipedia or we could insert yep. Google or we could insert any you other, do. right? Like, so same yep. conversation, yep. just different tool. And so what I see when I'm working with schools is exactly what you've said, is that they put kids on desktops or laptops, give them some common sense media or some other modules, uh, tell them to read laterally and then call it macaroni. 
And, you know, that doesn't apply to the devices and the platforms kids really use. I don't, I mean, I'm a fan of the concept of lateral reading when you're on a web browser on a laptop or a desktop. But if I'm researching something on TikTok, how do I read laterally? That doesn't translate to a kid. And when there's not bridges between the skills that we teach at school and their real life work, they're far less likely to apply them. So what we focus on, what I focus on, and I know Darren does too, is trying to give schools options for doing this that isn't just all out, kids have their phones out all the time. Because we recognize that there's real sort of classroom management reasons why kids can't have their phones out all the time. So we try to baby step them through that for everything from building analog examples that look like a phone to, you know, putting one mobile device under a document camera and having a kid come up and demonstrate how you might find information to centers and stations with mobile devices and so on and so forth. Whatever fits the culture and the um, comfort level of the teacher to help them build those bridges between what we do in school and what research looks like in real life, where frankly, the, the stakes are so much higher. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I mean, one of the things I still love to train educators on is advanced Google search skills. And I was in the school last week and I said, you can buy, your librarian can buy every database Mm -hmm. known to man and you should, and whatever you can afford, great, do it, show kids how to use databases. But at the end of the day, when that kid is at home and they have to decide to either go to a database, remember my username, yes. look up the school's password to get into that database, or go to Google yes. that we all just know where a kid's going to go. That's exactly right. I mean, it all. And so we have to teach kids yes. that. Yes. And it's kind of like, you know, it all goes back to like basic teacher 101, Jeff. Like, think about backwards planning. What's your ultimate goal here? If your learning objectives are about content, where you want kids to have the absolute at most accurate content or information about a certain subject area, then yes, a database is the right tool for that. But if your learning objectives are about information literacy and navigate, navigating our information landscape, then databases are the wrong tool for that. So you yeah. have to think about what your ultimate goal is and pick the right tools. And for me, if your ultimate goal is about helping kids be smarter and savvier online, mobile devices have to be one of the tools on the table. Hi, folks. We'll get back to today's conversation in just a minute. We're super excited to introduce you to and add TextBlaze to our growing list of shifting school sponsors. If you hate sending emails and working late while grading student assignments, and you're like most teachers, always looking for a way to save time and get your work done before you go home, well, then TextBlaze might just be your answer. With TextBlaze, you can save time on repetitive typing and get your work done within your working hours. Using TextBlaze, you set up keyboard shortcuts to insert frequent email replies, common grading feedback, and any repetitive text you find yourself typing. TextBlaze is a Chrome extension that once you install it, allows you to create customized shortcuts to use anywhere within your Chrome browser. So create custom shortcuts to use in any web-based LMS system like Google Classroom or Canvas, or any web-based email system like Gmail. TextBlaze has saved users over 28 hours a month. Think about that for a second. You spend a few minutes setting up your templated responses to students, parents, or colleagues, and then with a couple keystrokes, have TextBlaze write it for you. One of my favorite features 
is you can create a template and also have TextBlaze put the cursor where you want it within the template. So imagine you're sending home the same email over and over again to parents. You can create a TextBlaze template that writes the email for you and automatically puts the cursor where the student's name needs to appear within the email, saving you time and clicks. Don't take my word for it though. You can try it out for free by going to textblaze.me slash shifting schools and set up your account and see how TextBlaze can save you time on repetitive tasks. So what are you waiting for? Visit textblaze.me slash shifting schools to get started saving time today. That's textblaze.me slash shifting schools. And we thank TextBlaze for being a shifting school sponsors. And now back to our conversation. Mic drop. I just, we can just stop recording right there. <laughs> it's just, let's so, have multiple okay, let's talk about B. Jeff, this is fun. Let's keep Yeah, I know. It. This is great. Let's talk. Okay. Let's talk about B part mm-hmm. of this tweet. Apply to the spaces that use most, leave them fundamentally unprepared to contribute to a democratic society and vulnerable to the people from whom this is precisely the goal. Talk a little bit about sure. that Sure. So, you know, like it or not, for better or worse, these tools, these platforms are the ways that we engage with our government. They are the ways that we engage with our democracy. They are the ways that we make decisions about how we're going to vote, exercise our fundamental rights living in a democratic society. And there are people who recognize that that is the case and so then seek to flood the landscape with information that's going to cause us to exercise those rights in ways that um, fit their agenda. And so when we fail to arm kids with these, what are the tools of citizenry? I mean, we tend to think of these devices as the way that I share and order my lunch. But the reality (laughs) is this is the tool of citizenry. These are how we engage in a democratic society. And when we fail to teach kids how to be smarter and savvier and healthier in those spaces, we are failing to arm them with the tools of citizenry. I mean, I think that sounds sometimes a little hyperbolic, but I truly believe it with all my heart. Yeah. And and back to your point, Tricia, and then I want to hand it over to you for the next question. But this isn't just a thing for students, which is why I love that you're doing these book clubs mm-hmm. and to what your point, Tricia, that we have to also under critically understand this as adults, because better for worst, most, and we'll just call it fake news at the moment, sure. most fake news is not aimed at a 13-year-old. That's right. Most fake news is, at, is aimed towards us, 40, 50, 60-year-olds. And if we don't know this, if we're not understanding how to look at our emotions and engage with these conversations, then we're, we're, we're those vulnerable people. And, and we need to be teaching the next generation as well, but we need to know this for us. Trisha? Uh, well, and, you know, again, understanding that difference between misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, mm-hmm. and recognizing, you know, as you started off this conversation, Jennifer, that of course, in, in certain situations, it's our human nature to maybe want to fall for some of those that uh, leverage sure. our biases, right? Of and, course, yeah. And, and just understanding that. So in your book, Developing Digital Detectives, and of course, we'll be sure to link to it in the show notes, you're offering readers guidance on how information literacy, it's not just in its own you know, cubbyhole, but there's a real intersection with information literacy and social emotional learning. Mm-hmm. Would you expand on an example of how that intersection needs to be or can be highlighted? 
Sure, sure. So most traditional approaches to information literacy begin with a binary question that kids and teachers assume has one right answer, one static right answer. That question is, is this real or is it fake? And the assumption Mm. is that a learner, no matter what their age is, can figure that answer out, right? And Darren and I have lots of issues with that. I mean, first of all, to just slide away from your question just a little bit, Tricia, for a second, I promise I'll get back to it, (laughs) you know, but if there was ever a day where the creators of false information uh, left clues to, or the answer to whether or not this could be trusted within the information itself, if that ever was the case, it no longer is. Partially Mm. because um, they know that fact checkers can't mark something as entirely false if some of it is true. Um, But also because, and I like to go back to David Rothkopf's definition definition of, um, oh gosh, what's, hang on, I've lost the word I'm looking for. Does this ever happen to you all? Um, Infodemic. That's sorry. I'm blaming it on a COVID brain. I've got COVID right now. And so I'm not going to have, I have brain fog. And so I'll blame it on that. But David Rothkopf coined this term um, called an infodemic to describe the information landscape that we were living in and wait for it in 2003. This is when he coined the term, right? You know, so 20 years later, here we still are. But he talked about how an infodemic Um, consists of an information landscape in which some facts are sprinkled in with information that evokes fear and outrage and uses the tools of propaganda to manipulate a populace, right? And when I share that definition with people, it's like, ding, ding, ding. That sounds a lot like 2022, doesn't it? Like, it's hard to believe that that was from 2003. But this idea, this... um, method of sprinkling in some facts with the propaganda, with information that triggers strong emotions. This is the recipe for success that people who create and share false information for a living or to further agenda have found works the best. So asking kids to think to be able to come up with this sort of static right answer. And by the way, information online changes all the time. A a post that on this day says this, tomorrow could say something else. So the idea that there's a static right answer for us just is no longer the case. But also, Darren and I think that there's pre-work. There's work that has to be done before that, before we can ask kids to decide whether or not content is trustworthy enough to engage with. And that's the question we ask is rather, is this not, is this real or is this fake? But can you trust this enough to engage with it? Should you like it? Mm. Should you share it? Should you comment on it, et cetera? We teach kids about what engagement is. And then the question always comes down to them personally. Can I trust this enough to do those things? Because like we talked about earlier, once you do those things, even if you're commenting on to say this is false and no one should believe it, what you're telling the algorithm is, is I want more. So we want to get kids to pause before they get to that engagement piece. And so Mm. our question that we always start with then to get them there is how does this make you feel? Because Mm. once emotion has taken control 
um, of your, you know, of your brain is reacting to emotion rather than to the logic of the content, then all the skills we may learn about how, about how to identify red flags in the content itself go out the window. We're being driven by that fear, that outrage, that, you know, um, whatever, that strong emotion, and that guides our behavior instead. So with that in mind, we believe that there can be no effective information literacy without social emotional learning, that these two disciplines overlap in um, a really significant and profound way because, of course, SEL helps us recognize and navigate our own emotional responses to the world so that we can be more productive, um, not only in our school lives, but in our lives outside of school. And those skills apply to information. If we approach information literacy from that first question of how does this make me feel, as opposed to the traditional binary of is this is this real or is this fake i really appreciate that because you know jennifer i think what you're reminding us of too is not just to be passive consumers but we have a series of choices that we can make and i think that's a really powerful reminder i don't know if you're familiar with the work of melissa ryan um authors a great newsletter control alt right delete yes um, and she wrote this post on Medium a while back and talks about just how important it is to not really veer into hopelessness when we're having conversations about mis-dis, malinformation, because of course, I think it's a slippery slope into, well, I just can't trust anything, right? right. And that's right. a really dangerous place for us to be in. So I appreciate that you're saying there are things we can do. There's, you know, a series of questions that we can think about. And, um, just that, that question of what am I engaging with? How am I engaging with it? Why am I engaging with it? Um, I, I think again, it's yeah. just, we radically have to be thinking about the role that we can play and the power we do still have in this ecosystem. Yes. And, you know, and that brings up, a, a, to me, reminds me of a good point that so many of our students, regardless of their age, would never identify as news consumers. And probably most of them don't think about themselves as content consumers either. But so many 100%. of our students are content creators. You know, they yeah. aspire to be influencers, even if they don't already consider themselves influencers. I met a fifth grader a few months ago, y'all, who had 34,000 followers on TikTok. You know, not even old enough to really have a TikTok account legally, but there we are, right? You know? Yeah, we're not even going to talk about that. You're not old enough to have a TikTok, but this is the reality we live in. That's right. But I think that's an opportunity for us because we... Mm -hmm. Think about information literacy a lot from the consumption you know, yeah. side of it, but our students, our learners, they make choices as content creators too to try to increase the engagement on their content. When they post something, they want people to engage with it. They want people to like and comment and all that stuff. They're really motivated by that as all of us are to some degree or another. And so sure. we can leverage that to talk about their own choices as content creators that they therefore maybe can apply to the content they consume. If they're making choices to make people engage, so are other people. Yeah. I was at uh, supporting a school district last week uh, with an admin. It was an admin day. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about this connection between these digital skills, these network literacy skills and SEL. Mm -hmm. And it was great. By the end of the by the end of the session, I actually had a middle school principal who had come to the realization we cannot do SEL 
without including that's it on a on a very fundamental level how these devices and how the information landscape of our of our students is leading to the social emotional challenges we're seeing in schools exactly and i think this is a great time to be having this conversation and i hope people are listening and sharing this podcast because we have schools all over like the the if you want to say what the year of 2022 2023 is in schools it's social emotional education that's what everybody's talking mm -hmm. about but you can only be talking about social emotional education if you're also talking about all of this. Yes. This is the stuff. These are the emotions that are driving kids. These are the emotions. This is where kids, this is where cyberbullying starts outside of the school day and then is brought into the school day. Like this is where it begins. These aren't two separate, these aren't two separate things. Mm -hmm. It's we're talking the same thing through multiple different lenses. I think we just got to remind people that. Exactly. I I, I tell people all the time. <clears throat> While I wish that there was, because you know, most states do not have an established information literacy curricula or courses that kids take, you know, in some ways that's a an opportunity because this is the stuff that has to be embedded or should be embedded in all content areas. Everything. Yeah. Right. In the same way that we talk about technology being embedded in all content areas. It's got to be, these things overlap and they need to be tackled in the same work, not more work, just applied to the work we're already doing. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, lastly, we want to talk about your YouTube series, Read This Now. Yes. And the story behind how you got that started. We'll make sure there's a link over in the show notes. Great YouTube series called Read This Now. Talk a little bit about that series. What can people find there? And how'd you get started sure. with that? Sure. So, okay. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit by saying that, you know, Trisha, you mentioned the term doom scrolling. I joke a lot that I doom scroll for a living, right? <laughs> so things like Read This Now are the antithesis of, of doom scrolling. It's really like a, a joyful thing that helps fuel me for the other work that sometimes can be dark and depressing. Um, but <laughs> I believe also when we're talking about things being overlapped, I think the ways that we have approached reading in school for the last several decades in that we have or graduated an entire populace that sees reading primarily as a tool for assessment and nothing else. Um, I think that that has had consequences that relate to the information literacy mess that we're in. Mm. I really believe that those mm. two aspects of my work overlap and are related. So that being said, my work um, as a literacy leader, it revolves a lot around not more about finding a balance between the teaching of reading and the growing of readers. How do we help schools develop a culture of readers as opposed to simply a culture of reading rather than rewarding number of books or number of words read how do we help kids grow really authentic and joyful reading lives in which they see reading as serving a purpose beyond the school day and they get to benefit from some of the things we know that reading does for kids beyond achievement but in terms of the way that it develops empathy helps them develop self-efficacy all of those things that we really want them to have as human beings and also as information consumers and creators. So part of that work has always been about the idea of the book talk and teaching, helping teachers and administrators um, develop a culture in which they can book talk 
new titles that they're reading to their kids. So in doing that, I've done work with uh, Brad Gustafson, who's a principal in Minnesota for years around that. I mean, for years, long before Read This Now. And a question that we got all the time from people when we were working together, especially as conferences, was like, they would say things like, do you have a script for a book talk that I could see? I don't know how to do a book talk, those types of questions. And so, gosh, it's been over four years ago now. Brad and I just decided that we wanted to do a weekly webcast where we could just model unscripted book talks, just two friends Mm -hmm. doing nothing but giving a book talk to one another each week. Nothing is scripted. Everything is um, completely spontaneous. And we wanted to just model that. We didn't know how long we would be doing it. But four years later, here we are every single week. And we both love it. And the feedback we get from our community has been so joyful. Um, it's just, it's the work of my heart. It really is. If things mm-hmm. like developing digital detectives, the work of my head, then read this now is the work of my heart. And I just love it. Thank you for mentioning that. it. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic resource and it's great that, uh, there are so many videos. You've got quite the archive for folks to go to and, um, and to use. I had no idea that it was unscripted. So that's kind of a, a nice little. Completely. All we do is just, you know, goof around for 15 minutes, share books that we love and we're done. That's it. Yeah. And, it's, and all of a sudden you're a content creator. Like Indeed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I need to work on increasing my engagement though. I'll have to think about that. There you go. Oh, there you go. See, I love it. See, we're already coming full circle. I love it. Jennifer, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Such critical work that you're doing. Thank you for engaging us all in this work, making us all think deeper uh, about these conversations we need to have. Again, we will make sure that all the links um, are in the show notes for people. If you still want to join that book club, uh, there should be time to do that. And uh, of course, you can buy the books as well. We'll have links to that in the show notes as well. Jennifer, as we're getting ready to sign off here, where should people go to follow you, to learn more, to reach out and contact? Sure. Well, all my contact information is at librarygirl.net, but you can find me at all the places um, just by searching my name, Jennifer Lagarde. It's really easy. And I, I will, Thanks, I Jennifer. do just want to mention for anybody for who is on Twitter and is not following Jennifer, it's, you know, Thank we you. talked about doom scrolling an awful lot, but I, I appreciate what you share on Twitter so very much. So folks, if you're not following her or if you're listening and you're thinking, I'm not on Twitter, should I be? following Jennifer's account is a wonderful, wonderful place to start. So thank you for everything that you're doing and sharing in that space too. Thank you. It takes all of us together to keep on moving forward. So I appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shifting Our Schools. If you found this episode helpful or inspiring, please make sure to subscribe and leave the team a five-star rating. If you want to learn more about the Shifting Schools team or download our free resources, head over to shiftingschools.com to see what's on offer now. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode to keep rethinking the shifts our schools need.